Uh, last week, we kicked off a brand new series and launched into a new set of preaching uh, and a series that we called Being the Church or Be the Church. And what we began talking through, the conversation we sort of got started was, what does it look like to not just go to church, but to actually be the church? And so what we said we wanted to do was take a few weeks over this next season to talk through what the church is, its nature, its purpose, and what it means to be the church, what it means for you to plug in and be a member of a local church, perhaps even this one. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue that conversation, right? So we want to continue where we picked off. We're going to head in the weeks to come to talk about what the church does and what it means for you to be the church. But today we want to pick off where we were last week and just talk about what the church is, okay? What the church is. As we do that, I want you to consider a few scenarios. Uh, some of these come from a book called Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung, which I would recommend to any of you that are sort of wrestling and grappling through where the church plays into your life. Uh, but just picture some of these scenarios with me. Picture you're working with a real estate agent and you're looking for that perfect spot to live, right? And so you drive and you suddenly see a brand new construction that's just being built. The foundation has been laid. You pull over, holler over to your real estate agent and you go, it's perfect, I'll take it. And, and the, the real estate agent will look at you and say, take what? And you go, don't you see, I'll, I'll take it. This is exactly what I've been looking for. Right? And, and then you have this conversation where the agent begins to tell you all that's there is an open basement. It's just a, a foundation. There's nothing to take. And you go, no, no, no. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Right? So all of us would say that foundations and cornerstones are hugely significant. But if a basement doesn't have something built on top of it, is it even a basement? What, what is that? Right? Or, or let's consider something else. Uh, if a head does not have a body, is it still a head? Right? So I'd imagine, unless you're watching some kind of weird sci-fi movie that I hate, you're not finding floating heads bobbing along. And if you did, you wouldn't think that as cuddly and cute. You would think that grotesque. A head disconnected from the body is, is ludicrous. It it's, turns your stomach. Or, or picture another one. Does adoption work in a family... If a child were to say, I will have a relationship with my parents, but your other children I will not have a relationship with. Can, can you be brought into a home where you will relate, have a personal relationship with dad, but not with his other children? Does family work that way? Or I'll give you one more. Is a friend really a friend if he despises your bride? Right? So can you really be good friends with a buddy who loves you, wants to hang out with you, comes over to watch the game with you, but every time your wife walks into the room, he sort of rolls his eyes and gives off a deep sigh and makes some kind of a comment? Right? How, how meaningful is that friendship going to be if he loves you but could do without the one that you love? Right? If he's all for the groom but hates the bride? Okay, maybe by this point you're thinking, we've had enough, tell us where you're going, right? Because these seem disjointed. Uh, what are you getting at? Let me tell you. There's a bit of dysfunctionality, abnormality in all those analogies. There's a bit of absurdity. There's a, a bit of ridiculousness, a, a bit of nonsense, maybe even a bit of a, a grotesque nature to those ideas, right? We would find them rightly to be 
absurd. And yet what I want us to hear is that is precisely how people treat Jesus' church. That's precisely how you treat a relationship with Jesus that is disconnected from the church. Right? There's this great movement in our culture today that says, I can be spiritual outside of organized religion and institutions and the local church. Just give me Jesus, me, my cup of Starbucks, and a couch. Right? And, and you find this great push for spirituality that happens outside of the local church. And what the scriptures want you to hear is that that's absurd. That's nonsense. That's abnormal. That's even grotesque. In fact, the scriptures do not even have language for that kind of a Christianity. What the scriptures want you to hear is that would be like living in an open basement. That would be like connecting to a family to only relate with the father and exclude brothers and sisters. That would be like having a friend but despising his bride. That would be like carrying along a head but rejecting the body. That kind of a, an existence would be abnormal, would be dysfunctional. And the scriptures want you to see how important, how significant, how weighty this thing called the church is. And so what the scriptures do is it gives you a number of metaphors. Scholars have studied the New Testament and found no less than 96 different analogies and images and metaphors to speak of Jesus' church. Today I want us to consider four of them. I want us to consider that when Jesus brought us to God through the cross, he made us his body, he made us brothers, he made us his building, and he made us his bride. That when Jesus brought us to the Father through the work of the cross, he made us his body, he made us brothers, he made us his building, and he made us his bride. All right, we're going to look at all of that in Ephesians 2. So if you have your Bible, it's the passage that Princey read for us, Ephesians 2. We're looking at verses 11 to 22. As you turn there, let me just turn our attention to the Lord in prayer. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you another week, and we do not pause to pray because this is our pattern or our ritual, but rather we make this our pattern because each week we remind ourselves of our dependency upon you for this hour. Each week we are reminded that if it is not by your Spirit, we will derail what we're about to do here so that I will be focused on communicating or orating well, and your people will focus on being entertained. And so bring us back to what this is truly about, a people who are hungry for the word of God, who are ready to submit to its authority, who are ready to shape their lives by it and under it, who are ready to bend their experiences to your word rather than bending your word to their experiences, a people who by themselves will be proud and defensive and have their minds already made and yet by your word can be humbled and changed and transformed that they can literally leave here different than they came in. All of that is more than any man can accomplish, which is why we pray for it in the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father, and in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Okay, Ephesians 2, we're looking at verses 11 to 22. Let me give you some background as we get to that passage. Uh, in Ephesians 2, in the first 10 verses, in the passage before the one we're looking at, 
Paul is going to address the church in Ephesus, and in particular, he's, he's especially focusing on one segment of the church at Ephesus. He's particularly got in mind the Gentiles who are at Ephesus. Uh, what he wants to communicate to them is the good news of the gospel, right? And so the Gentiles, if, if you know the, the scriptures or the Old Testament, God had basically categorized the world into two segments. You've got the Jews, which are his people who have got his covenant, his lineage, his promises, his blessings, and then you've got literally everybody else. The Indians, the Chinese, the Mexicans, the Italians, everybody else were grouped into, clumped into this group called the Gentiles. And so now what's beginning to happen is in the New Testament with Jesus, suddenly these categories are coming together and now there's this new thing happening. And so he wants to unpack for the Gentiles what has happened for them in the gospel. And so in the first 10 verses, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, he begins to present the gospel clearly. This concise, beautiful presentation of the gospel. And what he does is he makes the gospel very clear. In the first three verses of chapter 2, he's going to explain the condition that we were in in our sin. And he's going to do that with stark language. He's going to say things like, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That spiritually you were a corpse, you had nothing Godward, no motion towards God, no thought for God, no longing for God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were walking in sin, dead to, sin, dead to God, alive in sin. He'll go on to say things like you were following the prince of the power of the air. You're following Satan. You're carrying out the desires of your body and mind and your flesh. You are by nature objects of God's wrath. And so as he unpacks the first three verses, you get the awful nature of our condition in sin. And then verse 4 is like this great hinge. This, this great hinge on which everything turns because the, the first two words of verse 4 are but God. And then he begins in the, the verses that follow to contrast everything about who we were in sin to now everything of who we are in Christ. Our condition in sin was this, but now our condition in our Savior is this. And so verse 4 he begins, but God, and then he'll say, you were dead, but God made you alive. And you were following Satan, but God seated you in heaven. And you were an object of God's wrath, but God made you an object of mercy and grace and love. And he crescendos that whole passage with the, the well-known verse that says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, so no one should boast. And his expectation is by the end of ten verses, the Gentiles just have their mouths dropped. And are saying, wow, right? This is the people who a week ago were in the pagan temples, worshiping false gods, sleeping with temple prostitutes, worshiping Aphrodite, eating pig flesh, uncircumcised. And now Paul is saying, you are right with God. You existed without hope, without God, and now... You have been made right with Christ. You're alive. Your sins are washed. You've been forgiven. Wow. And then comes verse 11. Almost as if Paul is going to say to them, wait, there's more good news. That's not all. And so in verses 11 to 22, he's going to unpack for them still more good news. The gospel not only reconciles you to God, there's something more that happens. Look at verses 11 through 17. Hear this text. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. All right, we're pausing for a second. So basically, Paul's just speaking to the Gentiles and saying, remember your condition in sin. That there was a time when you, the uncircumcised, that's what we who were circumcised, the Jews called you, remember that you were alienated from Christ. And not only that, he says, and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, verse 12, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying, remember what your condition was. You were not only alienated from God, you were alienated from God's people. You had no hope, you had no covenants, no promises, no blessings given to you. All that stuff was poured into Israel, and everybody else was on the outside looking in, outside of all of that. That's what you were. You were alienated from it all. And then verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Okay, that's a mouthful. Here's basically what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, remember what your condition was. You were alienated from God and you were alienated from God's people. No hope, no covenant, no blessings, no promise, none of it. But now, he says, through Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. You've been reconciled with God and you've been reconciled to God's people. So now, Gentiles, you're in. You're in with God. You're in with His people. You are a part of the people of God. The pig flesh-eating, uncircumcised, pagan, idolatrous, temple-worshipping sinners are now on equal footing with the historic people of God, and they're in, and totally and completely in. So in, in verse 15 that he's now creating a brand new category in how to describe them. Verse 15, he says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So here's what he's saying, that what Jesus has done through the cross is so radically, brilliantly, gloriously new that now you have to invent a completely new category for it. That the world is no longer categorized as Jews and Gentiles. Now there's a new man created. And it's not that the Gentiles have finally conquered the Jews, nor that the Jews have finally converted the Gentiles, but now there's something completely new. One new man in the place of the two called a Christian, called the church. That he's got this completely new category. It's not Jew and Gentile anymore. Now you have the church. And you're in. You're completely in. And for Paul to begin to unpack how weighty and how significant and how incredible it is that they have been grafted into the church, he begins to give you a series of metaphors. 
He wants the Gentiles to get the magnitude and the immensity of what they have just been swept up into. He wants you to get the magnitude and immensity of what you have been caught up into. And so he begins to unpack a few metaphors for you to understand the nature of what has just happened. And so he's going to use in this passage three metaphors. First, he's going to say that through Christ we are now one body. He's going to say, you want to know what the church is? Picture a body. Look at verse 16. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's the image. In verse 14, it's going to say, For he himself is our peace. He's made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's what's just happened. He's saying, Jews and Gentiles, you were forever separated. And now... God, through Christ, has broken down that wall of hostility through the breaking down of Jesus' flesh. Think of that. The irony here is it's in His breaking of His body that you have now become one restored new body. Or in verse 17, in 16, it'll say He's killing, thereby killing the hostility. The, the literal translation would be He's slaying the hostility. And again, the irony is In Jesus' body being slain, the hostility has been slain. As Christ's body was broken down, as Christ's body was slain, you have now been made one restored, healthy body. This is what we remember every week when we come to communion, right? You can do communion all all kinds of different ways. But do you know why we take the bread together? You know why you don't grab a cup of juice and a bread and go off in some corner by yourself and you and Jesus have that meal? You know why we take of it together? Because Corinthians will tell us we're one body, just like we're eating from one loaf. And this is not a meal that you have alone with God. This is a meal that you have with the body of Christ. This is a meal that we're not just even having alone with Jesus. We are looking left and right and having this meal together. We're one family eating with Christ our Savior. That's what we remember in communion. That's why we're we're concerned not just with our relationship with God, but with our relationship with one another when we come to the table. That's why we ask ourselves, am I right with the Lord? Am I right with my brothers and sisters when we come to the Lord? Because we're one body. This is even why in worship, right? I'm going to go on a two-second tangent. In worship, one of the things that I... I do, but I do it sort of secretively, is I look around. And I don't want you to think that I'm sort of distracted and just wandering from here and there. But part of what's happening in worship is you're not just tuning out everybody else so that everyone's a distraction for you and your worship with God. Colossians will say, when you come together, sing songs and hymns to one another and to God. So that when we sing... We're actually not just singing to God, we're even singing to each other and edifying one another through our worship so that it would be right for you to look around and pause and be amazed by what's happening in the room around you. That there are other sinners and you know who they are and God has grafted you all in and you're just amazed at the fact that we are worshiping the Lord together. That's why we call it corporate worship. If you see everyone around you as a distraction to just get away from and avoid so that you can just be alone with God, you've missed the point of corporate worship. There's a sense in which we're alone with God and we're standing in His throne, but there's a sense in which we're coming together to God's throne. And we're edified by the singing of one another because we are one body. 
And that's a metaphor that the New Testament will make a big deal about. It's one of the major metaphors to describe the church. Corinthians will say it like this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. Romans will say it like this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Colossians will say it like this, And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Here's what's happening. What Paul is saying is, do you get the image God wants to convey to you to realize what's happening here? You're one body. You're connected to one another. And you cannot disconnect yourself without doing violence to both the body and your relationship with the head. I'll say that again. You cannot disconnect yourself from the body without both doing violence to the body and your relationship with the head. There is no pinky that gets to separate itself from the hand and say, head, me and you forever. Right? How gross would a head be with a pinky growing out of it? That's absurd. Because the hand will forever be impacted if even the tiniest pinky is taken off. And there is no relationship for the pinky with just the head. It's connected to the hand and to the wrist and to the elbow and to the shoulder and the chest and the torso and the legs and the whole body. The scriptures are saying you are one part, an indispensable part of Jesus' body so that we need you and you need us because we're one body, right? Again, this is not a question of the really mature Christians are supposed to be committed to a church. I'm saying to you, this is what it means to be a Christian, right? It's not the super Christians that are committed to church. It's if you're not connected to the body, I fear you're not connected to the head. There is no relationship with Jesus that does not simultaneously have a relationship with Jesus' church. And when we are one body and we play our different parts, We have a healthy body, right? So the pinky doesn't get to say to the eye, I don't need you, and the eye doesn't get to say to the foot, we have no use for you. Every part, playing its part, whatever the part, together so that we might be one body. Dennis is going to preach a whole sermon on on how this metaphor impacts our service to one another. But that's the point. You know the beauty of this place, if there is any health here, it's because you are playing different parts. Right? Maybe I've said this before. Jim handles our money. I'm telling you the truth. If it were up to me, we would grab the offering and I'd hide it under my mattress because I have no idea what to do with money, how to run money, how to organize this stuff. I have a phobia of Excel spreadsheets. Right? But he handles it and because he handles it, things move here with health. Dennis helps lead a bunch of our admin stuff to the point that I got a PowerPoint presentation on admin stuff while Liz was in labor, okay? So that's a separate issue and sin that we're going to deal with. But because the brother does what he does, things here run. Nursery is run by Anne, a bunch of you who volunteer. 
I love our kids, but everybody knows nursery is literally the worst job at Seven Mile Road, right? Some of you guys sign up for setup and cleanup six times in a month just to avoid having to do nursery, right? But because you do what you do, parents are sitting here enjoying God's word while someone else is caring for your children. Julie runs a meals train online so that new moms are constantly provided with meals so that dad and mom can enjoy their children. Some of you are leading soul care groups. Some of you are setting up. Some of you are bringing coffee and desserts so that we can fellowship to one another. The body works when we get that we're integrally connected to one another and we play our part. Here's what Paul's saying. There is no relationship with the head that does not simultaneously connect to the body. And there is no relationship with Jesus that is vital and healthy and biblical and strong if it's not connected to the body. But I'll give you another one. Look at the next verses in verse 18 and 19. He'll say, for though we have access in one spirit to the Father, for through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's what Paul's saying. When Jesus brought us to God through the cross, he made us one body, and he also made us brothers. He made us family. Right? That's what he just said. He said, for through him... We have access to one Father through the Spirit so that now we are members of the household of God. That what Christ has done is He has made us brothers and sisters with one another. That you're not just body, you're family. Another metaphor He wants to make a big deal about is you are family. If you remember a story in the New Testament, Jesus is sitting with some of His disciples these people that are listening to him, following him, obeying him. And someone walks in and says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside. Remember what Jesus says? He said, who are my brothers and who is my mother? Whoever does the will of God are my brothers and is my mother. Now, why does he say that? He doesn't say that to sort of knock Mary and diss his brothers. He says that because he wants to take the moment to teach them what family really is. He's going to redefine family for them. He's going to show them that there is a family that runs even deeper and thicker than your flesh and blood. And some of you know that. Some of you know that you are connected to other Christians, maybe even in this church, closer than you are to even your own flesh and blood. Because there's a new blood, the blood of Christ, which runs deeper and thicker that has connected you to one another. That's why two strangers who know and love the Lord will come together and these strangers will be brothers in an instant because the course of the blood of Christ courses through their veins and connects them. The language of this passage is this Trinitarian language, right? So what does he say? Through the Son, in the access of the Spirit, you have been brought to the Father that you have been made family, and God, the triune God, is involved. The work of the Son has given you access through the Spirit to the Father. And now he says, you are members of one household. He even smuggles in this other metaphor. He says, you are fellow citizens, right? He sort of sneaks that in to say, do you get it? You're not, you're not alien residents. You don't have a green card in this place. You are fellow citizens, no second class here. You Gentiles who are outside are now equally in. And you are now family. 
that God has no red-haired stepchildren, but rather only sons and daughters. So again, just like body, would you consider for a minute the metaphor, the image that God wants us to get when he says that you have now been made family? That what has happened is that you, the gospel says, you were once enemies of God, at enmity with God. You were, John 8 says, children of the devil. You were street children. And God adopted you through Christ, which is, again, why we love adoption and preach adoption and promote adoption because it's such a picture of the gospel. Because what has happened is God came through Christ. The Father sent Jesus, your older brother, into the world to come and grab you from the street and make you a son in the family and make you a child in the home. Mark Dever, this one pastor, says it like this. He says, if you've been adopted and your parents are named, say, Smith, you know what suddenly happened? You just became a Smith. So you attend the Smith family dinners, and you share a room with the Smith siblings. And when the teacher calls your name, Smith, you raise your hand just like your older brother did before you and just like your younger sister will do after you. In every way, you are a Smith. And it's not that you suddenly decided to play the role of a Smith, but rather that someone came into the orphanage and looked at you and said, you will be a Smith. And on that day, you became a child and a sibling at the same moment. Only your name is not Smith. Your name is Christian. And you've been named after the one who has adopted you. And when Christian is called out, you raise your hand, just like the one who, who rescued you, and just like other brothers and sisters around you. You see, it's, an, it's impossible to speak about what a Christian is without ending up in a conversation about the church. Right? It's impossible to talk about Christian without saying, he is now my father, and these are my brothers and sisters. Right? And, and I want you to hear, if you see the church as family, it will impact everything you do in the church. And if you don't see the church as family, it will impact everything you do or don't do in church. Right? And so I want to ask you very practically, brothers and sisters, and I mean that seriously, brothers and sisters, do you see this place as family? And do you see these people as family, because it will impact everything. It'll impact the way you relate to one another, right? If you're in family, family can annoy you, family can bother you, family can sin against you, but you can't escape family. You didn't choose it. You're in. You're stuck. This is your family. And so you'll be at odds with one another, and you'll sin against one another, and you'll struggle with one another, but you have to reconcile with one another. You're, you're family, I, t I say it all the time. I'm amazed by Shainu's relationship with her older sister. She has one sister older. They are incredibly tight. I'm not making this up. I know of several times I'm sitting in the living room. I hear them talk on the phone, and I'm convinced. That's it. This is going to end now. Because they're bickering like cats and dogs. You always do that. Why do you do this? I never get what you're like that for. Why do you like this? And they're uh, for 10 minutes. And I swear every conversation ends the same way. So can I get the recipe for that apple pie? And I'm always amazed. And I even asked Shaina, how does that, I, I heard you. How does that conversation end with you exchanging recipes? It's her sister. 
right? They can fight. They can bicker. At the end of the day, they will forever be sisters. Nothing's going to change that. They're connected forever. They're sisters. So women here, let me ask you, do you see the other women here that way? And men here, let me ask you, do you see the other men here that way? Because if this place is family, it'll affect the way we relate to one another. It'll affect the way we commit to one another, right? It'll affect whether or not you float around from one place to another or you find family. I've said this before. I can't choose to go on vacation with whichever couple is going on a better spot. I've got Shainu and Hannah. I'm committed and locked down to them in a good way, in a joyful way, right? <laughs> but, but this is my family. I don't get to choose on Tuesday a better one, right? And I'm not saying this for you to commit to Sevma Road. I'm saying this for you to commit somewhere and find family somewhere and lock arms with brothers and sisters who are going to be brothers and sisters, right? Commit because this is family. This will impact how you commit to one another. Some of you are in soul care groups, our small groups, and we're hoping to multiply them so more of you can experience deep family. But there are going to be some nights when you don't want to go. And if this is all about you, then you will go if your week was good or not good. If you've got something to report to one another, maybe you'll show up. But if this is family, then I got Shibu and Vince and, and Sabu. and in my, th These guys are in my group, and I've got to show up because what if they need me? Because we're fam th these are my brothers. And it's not just what I'm going to dump on them. They may have stuff for me that I've got to love and connect them to. Do you see this place like family? Because that's what Christ made you. And it'll impact the way that you serve here, right? One pastor said it well. He said, if you see family, it's sort of the difference between eating at home and eating at a restaurant, right? When you eat at a restaurant, what do you do? You show up, someone else pulls out the seat for you, you sit down, someone else brings the plates and utensils, someone else fills your plate and refills your cup, and someone else brings you dessert, and if you've got a complaint, you air that out, and they redo it, and, and then when you're done, you get up and leave. Is that how eating at home works? Unless your name is Charlie and you're one of the really spoiled older men, when you eat, how does it work? If you want to eat, grab your plate. And you've got to pass that plate along. And if you want to drink, you've got to pour it. And you've got to pour it for your brother who's waiting for you and pass the plate to your sister. And then when you have, you don't get to say, this is not salty enough. Could you cook this again? Because if you do, mom has cooked that and dad will hurt you, right? <laughs> you eat what's put in your plate. And then when you're done, you grab that plate and you bring it to the sink and you help scrub and you serve because this is family. It's not, it's not a restaurant. It's not business. We're not consumers. We're family. This pastor said, think about the place where you've been most connected and committed. It's not been the place where you've been a consumer. It's been the places where you've served. And you've had to serve because you own this thing with the people around you. You are connected. You are committed. You're family. We could say much more. Here's what Paul wants you to hear. There is no relationship with God the Father that does not simultaneously have relationship with God's people, his other sons and daughters. There is no personal relationship with God that does not simultaneously have personal relationships with one another. I am so happy you came into a personal relationship with God, but that has also meant you came into a personal relationship with me and with those around you. Jesus has made us through his cross 
a family. Let me give you one more. Verses 20 to 22. He says this, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In bringing us to God, Jesus has made us his body, he has made us his brothers, a family, and he has made us his building. He has made us his building. He's made us a body, he's made us brothers, he's made us a building. Right? Last week we spent a great deal of time saying the church is not a building. It's not brick and stone. It's you. But then this week Paul is saying, but you are a building. That is not the church. You are the church. But you are a building. In fact, 1 Peter 2 will say, you are living stones that are being piled onto one another. That the apostles and the prophets laid a foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, the most precious stone of the whole structure. And you are individual stones connected to one another to form a building. That's what you are. You're a building. God is building something here. So today, when you leave this place, would you do me a favor? You don't have to make it obvious. When you drive out of the parking lot, would you look at this building? It's a beautiful stone building. And what you're going to see is that's a picture of what we are. You don't have to make it obvious, but just look for a second. And what you're going to see is stone mounted on stone on top of stone and mortar in between cemented perfectly together. And I want you to look at that and go, that's us. Right? I want you to look at one stone and go, that's me. And surrounding me is him and her and him and her. And we are one building together. That's the picture. That's the metaphor that Paul wants to use. That if you've got a stone that's been displaced and put to the floor, it is not connected to what it was made for. If you're a living stone disconnected from the thing God is building, Jesus is saying, I'm building you to be a building. Only this is no ordinary building. He's actually building a temple among us, right? The language here is, he's growing you into a holy temple so that you are being, verse 22, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That the building he's building here is no ordinary building. What he's building through us is a temple, the place where God dwells. Hear this verse from 1 Corinthians 3. Again, like the body, this idea of you being a building, a temple, is a major metaphor throughout the scriptures. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Okay, when I was young, I've always read this as, so I'm the temple of God. And there are passages, 1 Corinthians 6, that speak of you now being the place where the Spirit of God dwells so that your body is a temple of the living God. But do you know in 1 Corinthians 3, the you here is plural. So, so if we were in Texas, this is how it would read. It would say, do you all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all? And I don't know why they speak that way, right? Or if you're in Boston, it would be, do you not know that you guys are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you guys? You all are the temple of the living God. That God dwells among 
us. Think of that. Think of that. Seven Mile Road, what God is building here is the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, so that God dwells among us. Right? Walk through the, the dwelling of God in the Bible with me for a second. Right? How does it begin? If we were to trace that in the scriptures, Genesis 1-1 begins, In the beginning, God. And in the first two chapters, you find he creates man and women, and there's this sense in which he dwells with Adam. Right? There's this verse that says he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Right? God with man. Genesis 3 happens, the whole thing is broken. And so now God becomes invisible. There is no more dwelling with God. We cannot see God and live. God is hidden from our sight. He cannot dwell among us. Exodus comes along and there's this, this talk of God dwelling among his people again, only he's going to do it in a tabernacle, a tent. Right? Imagine the God whom the heavens cannot hold humbles himself to go camping with his people. They live in tents in the desert. He's going to dwell in a tent in the middle of them all, in a tabernacle. Only, again, he, he can't just live among them, so he's cut off from them in a holy of holies, this giant curtain. And no man can just enter, because if you enter, you are going to be struck down and die. He is glorious. You are sinful. And all of that is just shadows getting you ready for the temple. Right? It's just prefiguring the temple. This king named David says, God, I live in a palace. Let me build you a house. You can't live in a tent anymore. And God, being so gracious, says, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And lets him have a line of kings that will lead to the great king. But he says, I'll let your son build me a house. And so Solomon builds this great temple. And the temple becomes the center and the locus of everyone's worship. People stream from everywhere to come to the temple because unlike any other place on earth, this is the place where God especially dwells in a very special way. And again, you've got the Holy of Holies and he's separated from everyone and everyone pours into the temple to meet with God. Only the temple doesn't last. It's destroyed. The people sin and they desecrate God and they desecrate the temple and the temple's destroyed. And there's attempts to rebuild it. And then you get to the end of Malachi and you get silence. 400 years, nothing. And then John 1 verse 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word. And suddenly you're brought back to Genesis and you go, maybe God is doing something again. And maybe this dwelling is coming back. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's Jesus. And then verse 14 will say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, it literally says, and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh, and the Word tabernacled among us. And you go, he's the one. All of that tabernacle stuff was pointing to him, and now God is dwelling among us. And, and then Jesus will not just say, I'm the tabernacle. He'll say things in John 2 like, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it back again. They hate him for that, so much so that when they're ready to kill him, that's one of the charges that they bring back against him. They remember from three years back how he had said he's going to destroy the temple. And that was so important to them that they're ready to kill him for it. Only, of course, Jesus was not speaking of the temple. The scriptures say he was speaking of his body, and it was destroyed. And in three days, it was raised up. And suddenly you see, here's the temple. Here's where we go to meet with God. Here's where we come to worship God. He's the locus of worship. He's the center that everyone should be drawn to. He's the one. 
And then he ascends into the heavens. And Jesus, in a sense, does not dwell anymore here. But he promises that he will send his spirit to dwell, guess where? In the church. In the church. So that now you are the temple of God. You all. Plural. The church is now the dwelling place of God. Do you get what you've been swept up in? You've been swept up into something God has been doing from Genesis 1. From dwelling with man, to dwelling in the tabernacle, to dwelling in the temple, to God dwelling among us in Christ, to now God dwelling among us here in the church. It's no small thing that God has swept you up into when he called you into the church. Because you are being built as a building, Jesus himself being the cornerstone and foundation, and you playing your part, growing together. There's more. Ephesians 5, we'll talk about how we're the bride of Christ, and we could talk more about that. We won't for today. But there's many more metaphors. But what I want you to hear, we'll close, is do you get a sense of what God has done through Christ? He has grafted you in, not just to himself, but to his people, to a place where you can belong. You can belong here. You can belong here first by being right with God through Jesus. And you can belong here then through that right relationship with God by making you right with one another. Right? So if you don't know the Lord, that's where you start. You ask God to first graft you into his body, graft you into his family, graft you into his building, make you a part of his bride so that you can then be his family and his body and his building and his bride. Right? That's what God offers you. you know, I'll end with this. In our soul care group, one of our brothers shared his testimony, and one of the things that he said was um, he had never found a place to belong, never found a place to fit in, always looking for where to fit in, and with tears running down his eyes, and he says, now he's found it. And I'll tell you this, it's not because you guys have the greatest personalities, as though he's never met cool people before. It's that in this season of his life, he's actually come to know God, and through that has come to know God's people. So that now he fits. Fits like a brother in a family. Fits like a stone in a building. Fits like a pinky on a body. And that's what Christ is inviting you to as well. Let's pray.